So this sermon series that we're in, uh, in this little bitty letter on the very back of the Bible, it's like it barely, sometimes on those little bitty ones on the back, it's like they barely made the cut, right? It's like right, right before the, the, the coach says, you're in and you're out, like, yeah, we'll throw First John in, what the heck? You may, maybe we'll find a, pos- a utility position for him uh, somewhere out there on the field. So sometimes it feels like when you get back to the back, you're like, what, what are these letters all about and what's going on? Uh, it's interesting because when, when we pick series, Augie and I sometimes get together and we'll say, well, what, do, what should we focus on this series? Should we focus on, you know, sometimes we'll do a theme, uh, but it seems like more and more lately, we just tend to, to dig into a particular book of the Bible and see what kind of themes come out of that. And uh, so one of the areas that we look for that is we look at what's called the Revised Common Lectionary. And that's basically just an ordering of readings for scriptures on Sunday mornings that a lot of churches, uh, Methodist churches, um, and just different traditions kind of do. And that kind of helps us to just get a feel for where we want to go. And uh, we saw that 1 John was on the list, and I just thought, why not? Let's just give it a shot. It's in the Bible. Uh, Let's see what happens. But the, the people who put the lectionary together, they did so for a reason. And so there, there are reasons why 1 John fits nicely within this season. Do you know what season it is? It's baseball season, right? What other season is it? It's Easter season. It is Easter season. It's the season whereby we remember and celebrate and we revel in the resurrection. You know, in, Meth- in the Methodist church, we tend to talk about Lent a lot. And then, you know, it's the stuff of repentance and giving up stuff that we really like, and it's kind of miserable, and nobody likes it. Well, I don't. I like the stuff I like. And, um, and then we kind of get to Easter. We have Easter Sunday, and we're like, all right, we're good to go. But that's, not the, that's out of balance with the way God made us to be. God made us, whatever repenting we do, whatever confessing we do, if we, if we repent and confess five times, then we need to celebrate six times. Whatever, whatever we die to, we are raised to life even more so. And if you don't have that figured out, then you're out of balance as you're living through the Christian life. And so we have to learn not just how to confess and repent. We also have to learn how to celebrate and how to be alive. That is just as uh, much a part of what it means to to live the Christian life. You just can't have one without the other. You can't have a death without a resurrection and call it Christian, and you can't have a resurrection without a death. It is a package deal, my friends. And so 1 John actually gives us some good stuff as we learn to live out of the resurrection. Last week, we focused on 1 John chapter 1, where he says to live as people of the light, to be in the light as he is in the light. We are people of the light. Light exposes. Light, light is about truth. It is about what is real. We're not hiding. We are coming into the light, to the light of God and saying, Lord, here I am in, in all my, my good, bad, and ugly parts of me and good-looking parts of me. But Lord, I just give myself to you. Come and do your work in me. That's partly what it means. It means that we, as as we follow Christ, we are a people who are in the truth more. Not just the truth out there, but the truth about who we are and the truth about whose we are. And we continue to layer that upon ourselves again and again and again. And in the process of doing that, God forms and creates us into new creations. 
And so as a part of that, there are some absolute essentials within this package that we have to and cannot neglect. And John writes about it in chapter 2. He says, I am writing these to you that you may not sin, that you may not actively keep on doing the things you used to do, that, that your life is different because you know Jesus than it was before you knew Jesus, that, that Christ is invading your life not just into our world but invading your life means that that your life is actually different that you become a new human being so sin is one of those things that the world kind of talks about that less and less but but jesus christ came to the world to deal with sin it's the universal human problem and we're not going to, in the church, we're not going to take that and kind of push it to the side. We're going to keep it right here because that really is the issue, isn't it? Sin is what leads to death. God, through Jesus, has come to deal with sin. That has to be a part of our theology. It can't just be a little inconvenience on the side. Sin is real. And sin is, the, sin is a big part of the battle that we are uh, wrestling against. Jesus Christ came into the world to deal with sin. But there's another part that is absolutely essential in the letter of 1 John, and that is God's love. God's love is an absolute necessary part of what it means to be a Christian. The love of God is manifested and shown through the life of Jesus himself. Jesus is God. Jesus is the manifestation of God's love for us. And we have not yet squeezed all the juice out of that fruit. There's still some left and there will always be some left for eternity. And so in chapter 3, John kicks it off by saying, "See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children." He's he's writing to full-grown adults here. And he's saying we should be called children. It's a, fitting, it's a fitting Sunday to have all these children up here. And when we look at them, I hope that we can see not just this sentimental all, aren't they cute? But Lord, show us how to never lose something that's childlike in us. A childlike faith. A childlike sense of wonder. A childlike sense of worship. A childlike way of being in the world. Never stop being a child. Let that be one of your life goals. Now, that's different than being childish. And, you know, if we've been around kids long enough, we know that difference, hopefully. We, we can stop being childish, but let us never quit or cease being childlike. Beloved, see what love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, an absolute essential. Those who follow Christ must have this deep internal abiding sense that we are His. As uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, that we're His sons, we are His daughters, and that we belong to Him. It's out of that absolute unconditional love of God that we can go further. We really can't get any further until we get that uh, somewhat solid in our hearts and minds. Otherwise, everything else is going to be a performance. If we don't believe that God loves us and has accepted us and has taken us, if we don't fully buy that, then we're going to continue to be striving our life. Even our striving and doing good things is going to be a, a striving to earn His love rather than a striving out of His love. 
because of his love. Don't want to get the cart before the horse. It makes all the difference in the world. He goes on and he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. Right now, we are God's children. And then he says, And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. John is talking about how Jesus has appeared. So he's looking back into the past. But he also says that we know that when he does appear, that is looking into the future, that we shall be like him. So it's probably something we don't think about every day when we wake up in the morning or even go live out our day and go to bed at night. You know, this is something that we almost have to make ourselves remember is that Jesus appeared in the past, but he has also promised to appear in the future. And those two historical occurrences are absolute necessary signposts for our faith. Those are what locate us. It keeps us from getting lost in history. We are those people who look back upon Jesus, but we're also those people who look forward upon Jesus. It's a both end. We're right in between. And the more that we understand that we look back upon his life, death, and resurrection and ascension, but we're also anticipating another appearance, we find ourselves grounded. We find ourselves located. It's like a GPS that, that coordinates us into history. We know who we are and we know where we are in time. And so looking back is about remembering. Looking forward is about hope. And hope is absolutely essential if we're going to walk this walk. Jesus will appear again. And not only that, he's not just going to show up. We're going to be like, hey, Jesus, how's it going? It's going to be, we will be like him. So have you ever wondered what you're going to be like when Jesus appears? If you're like him, what does that look like? Well, I don't know about you, but when I think about that for me, I think of the, the fully in Christ Bailey, the fully transformed into his image Bailey. There's a bit of a discrepancy between Bailey today and Bailey when Jesus appears Bailey. Now, part of that discrepancy is in the fact that, that, that I live in a corrupt body. And the older I get, the more I feel that. I'm kind of getting to that age where like, things actually start to hurt a little bit. And uh, the, you guys know this. The older you get, the more you feel that. Well, the, the other discrepancy is, is something about my heart still needs to be worked on. Still needs to be changed and transformed. I'm still selfish. I'm still impatient. I still think about myself. I still try to perform too much for the world rather than just loving other people. I still want what I want more so, maybe just a little too much. The, the, the existing reality is still in discrepancy versus the future reality. But it says that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You shall be like him if you are in Christ. What would that look like? How do we live in that discrepancy? He goes on in verse 3 of chapter 3 and he says, Everyone who hopes 
in him purifies himself as he is pure. Purifies himself or herself as she is pure. Everyone who places a hope in Jesus, in his return and his reappearance, that kind of hope means that that we're longing not just to do things in life, not just to accomplish some things in life, but we're hoping to become a certain kind of person. That God has in His mind who He made you to be, and He's still making you into that person. He's forming and shaping you, or at least He wants to form you and shape you. Then theologians call this sanctification. It's about growing in the grace of God that He transforms you from the inside out into a person of a new character, a renewed character. And it means you look more like Jesus than you did a year ago or two years ago or ten years ago. Change. To be purified. Now, what does that mean for something to be pure? Think about that. When something's pure, it's, it's kind of the same throughout. If you, if you have a bottle of water and, and it's purified water, well, then it's water all the way through, right? But it, if, if water is not pure, then it's got something in it, right? It's got something that's not fully water. I'm going to drink this trusting this one's pure. To be purified means you're the same throughout. But we find in ourselves that, that sometimes we're not pure, are we? Last series, we talked about Simon Peter and how Simon Peter is, is a mixed bag, isn't he? And a mixed bag means he's not a pure bag. On one hand, he's confessing Jesus as the Messiah. And then the very next thing, Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. You're not speaking things of God, but you're thinking in human thoughts. I identify with that. He's got some purification to undergo. And you can see through his life, he actually does that. That God changes his heart and his mind. Purity happens when we bring our desires before God. Often in the context of corporate and private prayer, as well as corporate and private worship. When we bring our desires before God and we say, God, this is what I want, we are beginning the journey of allowing ourselves to be purified by the Holy Spirit. Even Jesus did this when he said, Lord, not what I want, but what you want. If Jesus had to pray that prayer, don't you think we might need to pray that prayer as well? Sometimes our desires are off course. Now, desires are not bad. The fact that we have desires means that we are human beings. When God placed Adam and Eve in that garden, he placed them with a desire to eat. That's a good and right and holy thing. The problem is sometimes our desires are all over the place. And we think, well, if I want it, it must be good. And I must take it in because that's who I really am or my authentic self. And that's kind of the world we live in. And if you deny your desires, you're denying yourself. That's the lie of the world. Not all desires are of the true self. In fact, I think most of our desires tend to be off. Lord, not what I desire, but what you desire. 
That desire to eat, of course, for Adam and Eve resulted in them eating something that was not good for them. And we've kind of struggled with that ever since. We still have this weird relationship with food, don't we? But God, who loves us and calls us His children, wants us to bring those desires before Him and to surrender them to Him. And the way that we do that, and and the way that we need to understand that is, is that it is a process of death and resurrection. When I say, Lord, I lay down my desires, I'm not going to feed my desires every single thing. I'm going to give them to you, Lord, because I don't always know what's best for me, but you do know what's best for me. I'm going to say no to those so that you can do something good inside of me. That's called dying, dying to self. You could also call that taking up your cross. Have you ever heard of the uh, phrase, death by a thousand paper cuts? It's just like when something's just coming at you again and again and again and again and again. It's not one big blow, but it's just a million little things. Well, life in Christ, dying in Christ is often, sometimes it's a big thing. Sometimes God will call you to lay down your life in a very real and tangible way. But most of the time, it is a very tiny little death. It's waking up in the morning, and it's getting on your knees, and it's saying, Lord Jesus Take this from me. I give it to you. I trust in you more than I trust in me. That's death by a thousand paper cuts. And then you, if you do that, the promise of God is that that he will give you a resurrection by a thousand paper cut healings or something like that. Every time we give our lives over, he gives us life back and all the more. A couple of weeks ago, I... uh, shared at a backyard memorial service for um, a friend of mine named Mitch Matson. Mitch uh, came to the 9.30, sometimes the 11 o'clock service. I, I can't remember which one he came to, but before COVID, he'd always sit right here in one of these two chairs. And uh, Mitch was a great guy, um, and it was just great to know him over the past six or seven years. But one of the things about Mitch is that he uh, was a recovering alcoholic. And I remember uh, my last visit with Mitch, I was at his house three or four weeks ago, and we were just having a conversation, and uh, we were talking about his, his journey in sobriety. And Mitch had been sober for about 31 years and nine months. And we talked about how every morning he would wake up and he would say, Lord, I thank you for another day of sobriety. Now, there was a time in Mitch's life where he had to really lay it down, where he had to say, I give myself to you, God, not my will, but your will be done. 31 years and nine months ago, he had to do that. That was a big one. But there was still more to go, wasn't there? There was still more purifying of himself to go. I counted about the number of days that Mitch had been sober. According to my math, it was 11,610 days. 11,610 days of waking up in the morning and saying, God, I am so glad for another day of sobriety. That's a, that's a teeny-weeny 
laying down your life, maybe a big one on some days. Death by a thousand paper cuts. Death to the old Mitch, resurrection to the new Mitch in Christ. What is it that you need to wake up in the morning and say, Lord, I give this to you. Not my will, but your will be done. When you do that, you are participating in the resurrection of Christ. You're reveling in the resurrection. You're living out the resurrection. You're living into the new hope of who God not only will make you into someday, but who He is making you into between now and that day. You're on a journey toward that person. May He reveal to you who that person is. And may you get to know that person, your true self in Christ, more and more every day. You know, for Mitch, it was his relationship to alcohol was a big part of that journey. For some of us, it's food. For some of us, it's sex. For some of us, it's anger. For some of us, it's you fill in the blank, vanity, whatever. What is it that God is calling you to purify yourself. Perhaps more accurately, to let Him purify you in. All this is a part of not just changing to change. It's not self-improvement. It's death and resurrection. And it's done so in order to glorify God. And it is because we are God's children. It's not in order to become God's child, but it's because Jesus has already claimed us and and placed his grip on our lives that we can live in this kind of freedom that he gives us. When you're God's child and you know it, then you're really willing to undergo a lot more discipline. Hebrews 12 says this, you, he says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as children? My child, do not Regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or lose heart when you are punished by him for the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And chastises every child whom he accepts. Let us allow God to do his work in us. It's not self-hatred. It's not even mere self-improvement. It is Him purifying us because our hope is in Him. That He is actually making us into who He designed us to be in the first place. Trusting God with our desires in exchange that He will give us something so much greater. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. That is the number one goal of God for your life. May we have the heart and the mind and the hope that He will bring that to completion and that we will participate.